When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business and all of the things life throws my way, sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, ¿qué tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter your reasons, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hello, everyone. I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm MR Raquel. This is Essential Voices. Last week, we spoke with Ms. Kinoor organizer, writer, and co-director of Black Visions in Minneapolis. Speaking with Miski began an important conversation that we wanted to continue to unpack this week with civil rights lawyer Ben Crump. Ben Crump is one of the foremost figures in our current social justice movement. He's represented families in multiple high-profile cases, including the families of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery. I was so honored to have Ben on the show, and there is so much we can learn from him, so let's get to it. Our roundtable with Ben Crump starts now. First of all, I'm, I just want to say how proud I am to be speaking to you. I know MR and I can testify that we've definitely been in the front row to see you show up for the community and for people. In this conversation, as we move into these roundtables, oftentimes when we do, Ben, is we try to visualize what is the world that we're trying to build for, you know, and where are we heading and how do we think about solutions, community-based solutions? I know that we've done a great job at creating signals and broadcasting the messaging and most importantly, the agenda of some of the outcomes we need as communities, you know, but we also try to visualize, you know, from a community standpoint and from individuals like you and I who can, you know, use their strengths to continue to create a more thorough and more elaborate and efficient operation as we move forward to that needle moving moment. I also like to offer that, you know, this is a place where we can inspire each other and really think about, you know, how we move forward together as well. So there'll be a plenty of opportunities in this conversation to, to dive into that. But first and foremost, just thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I mean that from the heart, brother. You know, just to kind of kick things off a little bit, what were your reactions to Miski? As I listened to Missy, I thought a lot about how traumatized the community is there in Minneapolis because George Floyd happens and it just literally shocks everybody and galvanizes people in Minneapolis and all across the world. Literally, the globe. People were marching saying, until we get justice for George Floyd, none of us can breathe. But Wilma, as soon as we end the trial, then they shoot and kill Dante Wright. And you're like, my Lord, how many times are you going to get the message that you don't have to shoot first Mm. and ask questions later or 
use excessive force because we are citizens too. Don't police us and protect and serve everybody else. No, protect and serve us as well. And then, unbelievably, Amir Locke is killed by Minneapolis Police Department. And so I'm listening to Mitzi's talking about doing the frontline work and the mental care. And I'm thinking they got to be just exhausted Mm -hmm. going through the cycle of trying to get people to believe to say, hey, we going to make the system better. Let's all work together. And then Dante Wright, Mm -hmm. Amir Locke. And they're saying, is it futeless what we're doing? Because it seems like nothing is stopping the hashtags from being created. And before George Floyd, there was Philando Castile in the Twin Lakes area. There was Jamar Clark. I mean, it was so many people of color being killed unjustly by law enforcement. And so the thing I kept thinking when I listened to Mitzis is this concept called racial battle fatigue. It's almost like Dr. Smith, professor from Utah, he created this concept. When you see this trauma unfold where a person is killed, a minority, and nothing changes, the kind of psychological trauma it has on all the people in that community that knew that person, not as a hashtag, not as a cause, but as a fellow human being. And it's almost like he said, you're in war, you got post-traumatic stress disorder, but nobody's acknowledging it in Minneapolis or in cities across the country. And so that's what I thought. I just felt like, man, even the people who are trying to provide help Mm. are going to need counsel, not just the families. We'll be right back after this break. When you buy a new house, you might say... Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. (laughs) No one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, they're with us today on Crew Call. I'm your host, Anthony D'Alessandro. Billie's vocals, it was automatic art. You know, I had to like choose a more challenging route than just like da-da-da-da. You know what I'm saying? Like it could have been like easier. And a lot of people have asked me like, how did you choose to have it be so soft and like so simple? And what else was it going to like? That's what the song wanted. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Crew Call podcast on Deadline. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations. Como la playa que viste en ese show, or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter the reason, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Welcome back to Essential Voices. That was something that really struck me from my conversation with Miski. It was the commitment that they were talking about at Black Visions to providing stipends for self-care in all of its forms, be it acupuncture or massage, 
you know, towards self-care in this new way that folks are viewing it. And I think that makes us positioned now in this moment more than ever to know how to take care of ourselves and in turn take care of our communities in a way that we've never really done so before. And so hearing this from them gave me a lot of hope. But to bring this to our conversation today, Mr. Crump, in Miski's story, they point out something that I thought a lot about throughout the last couple of years, which is that throughout the years of the pandemic, it seems like more and more folks have become familiar with abolitionist work and abolitionist futures. I think this is in part due to the dissemination of information that's occurred online throughout the pandemic, especially in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. So for you, Mr. Crump, I have kind of a two-part question, which is, while the movements towards abolition have always existed, how do you see the relationship between the pandemic and these movements? And also, in your opinion, has the pandemic amplified the work that you're doing and moved the needle towards a more collective or cohesive understanding of the abolitionist work that is still yet to be done? Well, I think the answer is twofold. Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and then George Floyd happening, I believe, at the height of the pandemic. Everybody was home, shut down. You couldn't do anything. And all we were watching were our devices and television. And so when you saw the Ahmaud Arbery video, you saw the pictures in the video after Breonna Taylor had been mutilated with nine bullets in her body in her own apartment because they executed this no-not warrant in Louisville, Kentucky. And then, you know, just when we was getting everybody's attention to say her name, you then had George Floyd come and say, I can't breathe, you know, 28 times while he kept his knee on his neck and you thought you were watching a Hollywood movie. For certain, he's going to take his knee off his neck. You know, this can't be real. And he never took his knee off his neck. And so the fact that we were in the midst of a global pandemic that we had never seen before and we were all focused on our devices, I think that made George Floyd reverberate across the world even faster, Mm -hmm. even Mm -hmm. in a more prolific manner. And so I had not left my house. I don't know about y'all. I hadn't left my house in about six to seven weeks because the pandemic and it was George Floyd being murdered in the way he was murdered, tortured to death. That finally got me to leave my house and go meet with his family because it was that traumatic to me as a spectator, somebody Mm -hmm. who just watched the video. And it was deep because I think in that way, the pandemic made people pay attention more. But then also it was kind of hard organizing as Mitzi said, because it was a pandemic and people were afraid to get the coronavirus. And so it was a very interesting dynamic, to say the least. When Mitzi said people made a decision that police violence was more dangerous than the pandemic to them. And they all came out and it was beautiful. I looked at the crowds across the country. Mm. You had geographical diversity. You had age diversity. I mean, you had old people, young people all marching in unison saying, we got to get this right. I had never been invited to speak to so many corporations Mm -hmm. than after George Floyd. I I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I tell about unity. When you put your fists together, it's almost impossible to divide it. But when you hold your hands separate, it's easy to break off fingers. And so we have to come together together. When I walk into courtrooms or walk the rest, I always put my fists in the air 
to symbolize that we are united stronger together. And so I hope that answered your question, MR. I think it was unique that nobody was protesting and too much before George Floyd because of the pandemic. But after that video hit, we all came out of our houses mm-hmm. and said, we just got to do something. Our humanity requires us to do something. You're so right. I mean, it's like what Miski said. The need to be together and organize and be a community was stronger and outweighed the fear of getting COVID in those moments. So thank you, Mr. Crump. That was really beautifully said. And Wilmer, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there was a a moment in which we realized that was the proof of concept that we've been waiting for over 70 years. You know, we've been waiting for all of our communities to feel a part of the sentiment of the message, you know, and I think when you look at how many cultures, like you said, and, you know, how many cultures were united in one voice and broadcasted universal virtue of justice and safety. And it was a really beautiful moment. And I often think of times, you know, and I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll dive into this a little bit more, but how do you sustain that signal? How do you continue to keep it alive, considering that what we did was break a mold and made it better? And then we think about the deflating moments where it keeps happening over and over again, you know? So in many ways, it makes me think a lot about what you do, Ben, because as the attorney for George Floyd's family, along with many families who have lost loved ones to police brutality, like right now, you are representing the family of Amir Locke. Can you tell us a bit more about your work and, you know, kind of what gets lost in the public conversation? It's so interesting to me because I think, you know, there is a perception of what it takes to do what your job as a title does. But what you've done beyond this message and being available to continue to broadcast that signal of the why you stand up for these families, it's what's really survived through not just the pandemic and the movement and the marches. It's what's been heard loud and clear. Now, thank you for that, Wilma. I think essentially I am a civil rights lawyer at my core. We do a lot of trial work for other matters, but it's this calling. My mission in life, I believe, is to go try to fight for people who are marginalized, victimized, and disenfranchised, no matter what situation they may find themselves in, to try to give them a voice. My personal hero is Thurgood Marshall. He's my North Star. And, you know, I think about the things that I encounter, the obstacles, and, you know, it's not a bed of roses, but we get death threats and we get things from the enemies of equality. Mm-hmm. But it's nothing like what Thurgood Marshall had to encounter during his day. People would say he's going to take a case. All the communities of color would get excited. Thurgood's coming. Thurgood's coming. But then the Ku Klux Klan and the uh, white supremacist groups, they were getting ready for Thurgood to come, too. This Negro from New York, as he was often referred to, when he would come across the South and across America. And it's deep because I think about how Thurgood would have to move from house to house every night while he's in that town mm. working on a case. Say, friends, I was in Minneapolis almost two months working on George Floyd. I got to stay in the comfort of my hotel room every day. Thurgood knew that if he stayed more than one night in any particular place, mm. the lynch mob was going to wow. come and get him and kill him. Wow. But he would still show up the next day in court. Mayor and everybody's hostile. They mad saying, how do you deal with it? And, you know, what do you do when you get these threats? And I said, well, you know, you don't take them for granted. You take them seriously. You report it to the FBI. 
And then you show up the next day to let them know that there's nothing they can do to make you afraid for standing up for our community and standing up for our children. Mm. That there are some things you have to be willing to die for. And so that's my mission to be a person who's unapologetic and saying that I will stand up for our children's future, I will speak up for our children's future, and I will fight for our children's future mm. to have an equal opportunity at life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness like any other citizen in America. And so I go and I fight in courtrooms. I sometimes get in trouble. So if they ever put me in jail, y'all don't let me spend the night over jail. Now y'all come and get me out. <laughs> we got you. We got, we, we got you. Hey man, appreciate those words. Be- beautifully said. And it's beautiful to, you know, hear ourselves in, in that sentiment. Because in America, we are one, you know, and specifically yeah. when we share you know, our, our skin color, you know, when we know that our, our skin color for the history of our contribution to this country has been looked at as not equal, to say the least. Right. And I really appreciate that, um, Emar. It's so true what you're saying. And I want to bring things back to our essential worker, Miski, for a moment and ask you, Mr. Crump, from your perspective, what role do local organizations like Black Visions in Minneapolis play in supporting these movements and in supporting the work that you're doing? Now, it's critical, MR. It is absolutely essential. And I've developed this model that we have to fight in two courts, one in the court of law and the other, which I think is more influential, is in the court of public opinion. And so we have to affect the hearts and minds of the society and the community if we're going to ever have a chance of getting some semblance of accountability and justice in the courtroom. And so I think it's critical that we have people fighting in the court and out the court. And that's what the organizers, I call them freedom fighters. That's what they do. You know, these freedom fighters, they show up. They ain't got no health care benefits. They ain't got no pensions. You know, they ain't got no hourly wage. But they show up because something has driven them to say, mm-hmm. we have to do something. Our silence is betrayal. That's awesome. I've been part of the, call it like a, a League of Extraordinary Individuals, <laughs> right? Like, I feel like... You know, for so many years of my life, I'm going into 17 years of activism myself and where I just kind of decided that, you know, public speaking and, and most importantly, community engagement was an extension of my career. So I've met mentors like you that I've learned so much from and not just in the words, but in their actions. And what you're mentioning is so, so incredibly sobering because it reminds me of, you know, how many generations have taken that spirit and kept the torch moving forward. Right. I mean, you think about yeah. how many the different individuals in of the many cultures that are actually gotten in the game and made sure that, you know, the torch never goes out and that it continues to move forward. And it makes me think, Ben, about so many things. And, you know, for me, a lot of the work that I do is obviously within the Latin community and the African-American community. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of work with our Native communities as well. And and I think about two sides of this question, right, which is how do you see the non-Black communities of color coming together to support this work? And in the same coin, when you flip the coin, how do you feel that your community can also help amplify the other communities that are in the same fight? Because but there's so much that we can learn from the yeah. movement and the multi-generations and decades and decades that the African-American community has been fighting for justice and equality. And at the same time, workshopping and sharpening the tools as we continue to fight together now, right? Yeah. Now, Wilmer, that is the crux of the matter. I think that is the key there as coming together. It would be disingenuous for anybody to say that 
if you hear somebody crying out because they are being marginalized or disenfranchised to not try to answer the bail. And so I've just hired two attorneys who are of Latin descent Mm. and they are helping us to try to identify how we can amplify a lot of our Hispanic brothers and sisters who have been either killed or terribly harmed as a result of excessive force. And I will say this to you all. You're going to hear the name of Michael Ortiz and down in Hollywood, Florida, near Miami. He was having a mental health crisis. He was face down, stark naked in handcuffs and broad daylight. And the police officer shot him in the back and paralyzed him. They are fighting us to keep that video from being released to the public. But I think that is going to be the case. I won't say it's worse than George Floyd, but it's as bad as George Mm -hmm. Floyd. And when a brother, Michael Ortiz, who is of Hispanic descent, doesn't speak English, only speaks Spanish. When that happens, I think we all should rise up just like we did for George Floyd. And I'm going to use everything in my power, all my resources, all my whatever skills I have to influence the media to say, Michael Ortiz's life matters, too. Mm. Thank you for sharing this with us, Mr. Crump. It's important to remember intersectionality like you and Wilmer are talking about when understanding the work that's happening collectively across Black and brown communities. And I think we're sort of in this moment in the conversation of thinking about, as Wilmer said towards the beginning, of creating the world that we want to get to. I'm hearing a lot of collaboration between different communities as part of the way that we're going to get there bolstering each other and showing up together, being there on the front lines together. And one thing we spoke about with Miski was their charter amendment in Minneapolis to replace a police department with a Department of Public Safety, which unfortunately did not pass. But in your mind, Mr. Crump, as we keep working towards abolitionist futures, what are the alternative ways to move forward in regard to policing? Yeah, I think you have to just believe that in your heart that whatever the challenges are, we can meet them together and overcome them. And the only way we can survive this attack on our most essential right is to come together Mm -hmm. and say, no, no, we have to stand together. If we are divided, they will take our democracy from us. Oh, amen to that. And furthermore, you know, the whatever leadership gets the desk, you know, and makes mm-hmm. decisions and signs off on propositions and rules and laws, you know, and new ways of engaging the uh, community. You know, it also really does directly affect both of us, both of our communities. And like I said, we're in the same neighborhood. So if those decisions are made upon us and onto us, you know, and yeah. for us, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble because there will be no comprehension or decisions being made by people that understand what it's like to live in the same zip code. And that's major. I appreciate you offering that. I know there's a lot of rallying up going on, specifically with this voting, because the defracturing of our majorities, you know, speaking out loud. And I'm talking majorities as you know, African-Americans <laughs> and Latinos are becoming the majority in some of these voting blocks. Yeah. And it's important that they are not heard, but they are part of the tailoring, right? The making of our country. Yeah. Right? We're, we're putting the bricks down ourselves, too, you know. So that's super important. I appreciate you offering that and reminding us of continuing getting behind that because you're right, there's a lot of work coming up. We got a lot of work cut out for yeah. ourselves in the next chapter of the voting conversation. We'll be right back after this break. When something happens to your car, you might say, 
But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You. Hola, ¿qué tal? This is Cheekies from the Cheekies and Chill podcast. For whatever reason, or absolutely no reason at all, sometimes we all just need some time to turn off and get away. A lot of times on the My Cultura podcast network, our storytellers share their adventures and tips for living our best lives. And why not? With the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card, you can easily check off all those dreamy destinations, como la playa que viste en ese show, or climbing that mountain on your screensaver. I see you. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter the reason, the Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Welcome back to Essential Voices. As it relates to this whole concept of defunding the police, I, I'm a trial lawyer. And so I understand how you frame a narrative. If you frame it in a certain way, then you can predict what's going to happen. So you always have to be very careful how you frame things. I know if we frame it a different way, where it's inviting more people to the table, more stakeholders, that we can be successful in achieving the objectives. What do I mean? I tend to think, instead of saying defund the police, that I know will polarize completely one half person, no matter how pure our intentions may be, you have to frame it or characterize it as saying, how can we reimagine public mm -hmm. safety? Because now you have invited people to come to the table and say, let's see how we can reimagine this thing called public safety. And we all want safety. And so mm -hmm. who can be against safety? And right. so that's something where you, it's an invitation. It's an olive branch versus a line in the sand. And then you talk about the public. Well, everybody wants their family to be safe. And so you think about your family as part of the public. So you say, well, how can we reimagine an entity that keeps all of us safe, mm -hmm. everybody safe, where the police officers can get home to their families and loved ones, but also our young people of color can get home to their families and loved ones as well. Let's talk about that there. Does that mean us trying to institute more community policing where you got police who actually know the people who they're supposed to be protecting and serving so there's not this veil of ignorance when they see a little black or brown person running away from them and they say, I feel him fear and shoot him in the back. Versus, no, no, that's Randy or that's whoever running away. And I know them. So I don't shoot first and ask questions later. Or how can we incentivize police to live in the communities? Whether you say we're going to provide a stipend in some of this big police budget to have police who live in the community or start recruiting from inside the community 
people to want to be part of the solution to public safety. And we should always keep framing it public safety. That way it invites everybody to the table. And, you know, having with all these mental health crises, unparalleled rate, we need to have social workers working with police departments as well. You know, all these different things we need to do to try to come up with a solution to say, how can we prevent so many hashtags Mm. that keep happening? And so that's how I choose to tackle that issue. And we inherited a lot of that pain. You know, a lot of that pain comes from multi-generationals. And it's encoding as a blueprint of, of the how-to deal with when you're presented with X or exhibit A, exhibit B, you know, and, and you react very much like a tradition. And it's a tough thing to see. This may be a controversial question, but the question is, based on all the work we've done, how strong and how global our signals have become, how small the world has also become thanks to the same platform that you described earlier, which is technology that has actually united us in odd and different categories in ways that we never thought we would be connected or related to one another on. Are things getting a little better? Do we feel like we're seeing a little bit of that sunrise at the end of that horizon? You know, we, we've been getting up early very, every day. You know what I mean? We're trying to get that sunrise. So, um, you know, I wonder if there is a little bit of that. And from your perspective, from where you sit, do you see a shift? Do you see a paradigm a little bit? Do you see that there is this promise? Yeah. And Wilmer, I think as we come to the Trayvon Martin 10-year observation, we're going to see it all over the media. Trayvon Martin, 10 years later, how far has America come in achieving equality and justice for all? How far have we come in our pursuit for racial justice? Mm -hmm. And I think that we've seen some things in recent months that show us we're making progress when you think about the conviction. And I think this is part of Trayvon Martin's legacy Mm -hmm. that you had the conviction of Officer Derek Chauvin for killing George Floyd, keeping his knee on his neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds. I think that's part of Trayvon's legacy because he raised the consciousness level in America. He made more awareness of these matters. And then you saw the white policewoman, Kim Potter, get convicted for killing Dante Wright. You know, she said she went to pull her taser, but she pulled a gun and shot him in the chest. And you think back to Oscar Grant, you know, and... Oakland, California, at the subway station, the, the basis of the movie Futeville Station, when we first met Michael B. Jordan and so forth, it was kind of deep because you saw that officer got a slap on the wrist, mm. spent less than a year in jail. Right. But now we see we're making progress when the officers use the same excuse. And oh, by the way, that's the excuse they're going to use on that Michael Ortiz case I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. They, he said, well, I meant to pull my taser, even though they had already tased him twice before. And then certainly with Ahmaud Arbery, where this lynch mob got convicted of lynching this young African-American man who was jogging. And so they lynched him for jogging while black, not in 1940 and 1950, but in 2020. In our day, MJ, they lynched this young man. So we can't talk about Yo, back those days, no. And our day just happened in broad daylight and on TV. And they were free for 73 days. They slept in their own bed. And women, that blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Just like 
they had video, but they still took a white man who lynched this young black man's word that, oh, well, he attacked us and everything. And they saw this video where they chased him for almost five minutes while he yeah. ran for his life. Yeah. And so when I think about those things, because that was 11 white people and one black person on the jury in the deep south of Georgia. And they came back, despite all the dog whispers. I don't know if y'all followed that trial where they tried to say, you know, his had ashy legs and his feet were dirty like he was a runaway slave and all this mm -hmm. craziness. But the jury saw through that and they convicted that lynch mob. And so what it tells me is that we are making progress. We are absolutely making progress. But we have to remember it's a journey to justice. Like any journey, sometimes you take two, three steps forward, and then take a step back. But what we have to remember on this journey, we just got to keep our eyes on the prize, brother. Mm -hmm. Keep our eyes on the prize. No, Ben, that's so incredibly well put. I mean, we're coming at a crossroads, right? Where we go, what do we broadcast? We broadcast the outcomes, the solutions, right? The uplifting moments. Or do we continue to broadcast the terror, right? And I think it's a combination, right? Because the, yes. the, the point is that it's important for our communities to understand the gravity that we carry in our shoulders. It's also important to share those uplifted moments when actually it does work, where we actually did it, right? To do that. And, I, and that's why I asked you that controversial question because, and I say air quotes when I say controversial, Because it seems to me like most of the shows that I listen to, most of the news that we see, they're, they're broadcasting the happening, not the outcomes, right? And I think it's important mm -hmm. to see what happens when, Ben, you do your work and it works, you know, and, yeah. and what that does for society and, and, what, and what does that to community and what fire does it light up, what ignites, what energy re-energizes the movement. And I think it's as important it is to raise awareness for injustice It's also important to raise awareness for when it works, yeah. you know, because yeah. I think that we got to get behind your movement. We got to get behind what you do. And, and I know we've come a long way, you know, in the last couple of years, there's, you know, there's obviously clear that we have a lot of work to do, you know, but specifically in living in the society that we all feel super proud to go home mm -hmm. and to live in this country that gives us the opportunity to be anything that we want to be. And in most cases, People of color in the last couple of decades have proven that they can be anything they want, Amen. including the president of the United States, right? I mean, we, when you looked at yeah. President Obama, we said, oh, we're in America. We're officially yeah. in America, you know, and I, and I love that sentiment. And in your mind, what are some actionable steps that, you know, that can take into continue to embrace progressing forward, you know, and hopefully looking at that world that we see, you know, as ours and as the one that we want to call home? Yeah. And you make such an important point that we have to look at the momentum. We can't just always talk about how bad it is. And that makes people not feel inspired. And man, the last 16 months, we should feel really inspired because we're seeing historical verdicts that we never saw before happen. And we're not saying we forget the struggle because as the great Frederick Douglass Negro abolitionist said, without struggle, there can be no progress. So we should never shy away from the struggle. If we're in the struggle, that means we're making progress. 
But the two things I think in particular, Wilma, that really gives me hope is the fact that in the aftermath of all of this stuff, we saw great progress being made over 500 cities after George Floyd outlawed and abolished the chokehold. They said, our police departments, you can't do that anymore. We don't want you choking nobody, putting your knee on their neck. The people have spoken. We heard them. And so we're going to abolish the chokehold. And then you saw after Breonna Taylor, even though we got work to do in Minneapolis, there were three states and over 100 cities that abolished no-knock warrants that were being disproportionately executed against black and brown families. And so in violation of the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures. I mean, it's crazy when you think about the police busting your house at this time of day when most Americans are enjoying their rights to the Second Amendment and they got a gun and you didn't announce themselves. Man, it's a danger for police and a danger for the citizens. And so after Breonna Taylor, we saw a lot of progress there. And then after Ahmaud Aubrey, Georgia was only one of three states left in the United States of America where they didn't have a state hate crime law that says if you kill somebody or you injure somebody motivated by race, then we can make enhancement on the punishment. That made progress, brother. Mm -hmm. Now we're down to two states, you know. So it's a lot of progress being made. And a lot of this happens because of the activists, the people in the community saying, our silence is betrayal and we have to speak up. And so while I'm fighting in the court with many talented and great lawyers, it's so helpful when we have your voice. Well, I mean, think about your influence, brother. I mean, you adore it all over the world. And so when you say, I'm going to use my voice to give a voice to people that might not otherwise get a voice, man, it makes all the difference in the world. Thank you for those words. I take it to heart because I was born in Miami and I was raised in Venezuela when I came back to the United States. You know, I was a citizen. I was blessed to be a citizen when I came back to the United States. You know, one of the ways that I felt that I could pay it forward was ultimately to just get involved and understand, you know, what do we need? Where can I show up? And, and I say this as kind of an example and an inspiration and a beacon of what you're saying, Ben, because I think our listeners and, and everyone, the audiences, the, the fans out there, the people that support these conversations, you know, also have a strength that they haven't necessarily mm -hmm. embraced or cultivated. You know, they live in a neighborhood that may share the same or may not share the same opinion. These simple acts of conversations of kindness in which you invite the disagreement. We have to allow ourselves to disagree, to find where we can walk together so we mm -hmm. can truly get to where we got to go. And I think that that's ultimately, I mean, and you do it beautifully. You try to find the common ground so you can get these outcomes, so you can get these results that iconically have changed so much in history. And I think about the power that our communities have to find that conversation that disarms most and invites all of them to really get involved in how do we work together. And I'm just so blessed. And, and Ben, honestly, I've said this to our teams before and specifically back when we used to do work at Hardness. We're just so blessed to have you driving. And we're so happy when you hear that you're putting on the jersey and you're getting in the game, you know, <laughs> because we understand it's about to be a journey. And I'm just so proud and so grateful that you were able to grace us with your voice here on Essential Voices. You have quite a few fights coming ahead of you and any thoughts and then maybe how the community can support the work you're doing. I will say this and I'll try to say it as brief as I can, because it really is what I believe in my heart. 
my personal hero, Thurgood Marshall, said at the 200-year celebration of the signing of the Declaration of Independence that the basis of the United States Constitution is simply this. He said that a black baby born to a black mother, the most uneducated black mother, the most inarticulate black mother, the most impoverished black mother, has the same exact rights as a white baby born to a white mother, the most educated white mother, the most articulate white mother, the most affluent white mother, just by virtue of that baby drawing his first breath as an American citizen. Now, he said, I know that's not the case in America today, but I challenge anybody to say that's not a goal worth fighting for. I challenge anybody to say that's not what makes America the great beacon of hope and justice for all the world to marvel. And so when people want to help, all they have to do is use their voice. Whatever influence they have, when they see an injustice, don't look away. Speak truth to power. I love Ben's metaphor about the closed fist versus the open hand and how we are all so much more powerful when we come together. We are living in such a historical moment and I'm truly hopeful that the momentum will continue and we will start to see some real change. It was truly an honor to be in conversation with both Miski and Mr. Crump to find out more ways that the community can continue showing up to end police brutality. Next week, please join us as we speak to Solange Ramkesun, a survivor support specialist who works as part of a sexual assault response team and answers the phone when someone calls into their hotline. We'll follow our conversation with the roundtable with actress and advocate Gabriela Union, a really, really dear friend of mine that I'm so happy to have on our show, and expert on gender-based violence prevention and response, Lina Abirafi. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel, Sean Tracy, and Justin Cho, and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to last week's Essential Voice, Miski Noor, to Black Visions, and to our thought leader, Ben Crump. Additional thanks to Darnell Strom and Cameron Mitchell. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on the Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Between recording the next episode of my podcast, running a business, and all of the things life throws my way, Sometimes it's good to just get away. Hola, que tal? It's Chiquis here. And let me tell you, I love booking a trip where I can escape. There's nothing like spending a few days at the beach, relaxing and spending time with family. No matter what kind of traveler you are, and no matter your reasons, 
The Delta Sky Miles Platinum American Express card is the way to go. If you travel, you know. Hi, I'm John O'Brien, host of Money and Wealth on the Black Effect Podcast Network. I'm an entrepreneur and a businessman. Now, every Thursday, my newest venture is educating you on how to win financially. Even better, I'm going to teach it in a way that, well, you can understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and take you where you need to be. We all might have different starting points and end goals, but as long as we have the desire to acquire financial freedom, it can be done. Listen to Money and Wealth with John Hope Bryant every Thursday on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.